0: Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 25, 30 Years of Neo-Maxi Zoom Dweebies. Hello, and welcome to Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneris, and this time around, I'm taking a break from my look at 1994, the imp- most important year of the 90s, to go back exactly one decade further to 1984. Why? Well, if you're listening to this and the day it was posted, it's exactly 30 years since this happened.
1: Saturday, March 24th, 1984. Shermer High School, Shermer, Illinois. 60062. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. What we did was wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. What do you care? And you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, the most convenient definitions. You see us as a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. Correct? That's the way we saw each other at 7 o'clock this morning brainwashed.
0: So yeah, in case you didn't figure it out from the intro music and that, it's been 30 years since The Breakfast Club. Now, you may be thinking, wait, The Breakfast Club was released in 1985. It's not the 30th anniversary of The Breakfast Club, and you'd be right. The film was released on February 15th, 1985, But I'm going to be Mr. Cool Nerd Guy and talk about the 30th anniversary of The Breakfast Club on the 30th anniversary of the day the movie takes place. And you all just groaned. But seriously, I've wanted to do an episode about this movie for a long time, even though it doesn't fall under the random or obscure pattern I tend to choose for a pop culture affidavit. And that's because it's my favorite movie of all time. Sure, I'm a kid from the 80s who was raised on Star Wars, and I love all of those movies and everything else that's a classic from my childhood, as well as every film that's a classic geek movie, at least the ones I've seen. And I've watched Star Wars about 80 more times than this, at least. But of all the film genres out there, if there's one I'm actually, or I can kind of consider myself an expert, or at least a marginal expert, it is the teen movie genre, especially teen movies of the 80s and 90s. This comes about mainly because of four things. Uh, First, an idiotic desire for the acceptance and coolness that eluded me through much of my formative years. Uh, Much of my life, actually. I mean, I'm 36, so being cool doesn't really matter anymore, to be completely honest with you. But I am the first to admit that in the fifth grade, Uh, Starting the 5th grade, I struggled with the fact that I was deemed uncool by the social Illuminati at the time. And uh, this had a pretty big effect on my self-esteem. Not to get into a long-winded psychological breakdown of my acceptance issues in junior high and high school. But watching movies like this or Say Anything or Fast Times at Ridgemont High or mm, what have you helped fulfill a need by providing me kind of with a fantasy. And, And yes, a certain scene in Fast Times at Ridgemont High involving Phoebe Cates, fulfilled another fantasy of mine, but I'll save that for when I cover that movie um, on another episode of this podcast. Anyway, the reason that I like this movie so much uh, is because of the fact that it is an escape or a fantasy in in some way or another, and it's why I like the genre as a whole. Uh, The second thing that this comes from, uh, this my love of teen movies comes from, is actually Degrassi Jr. High and Degrassi High. Uh, I blogged about the shows and and will again. Um, I've blogged up to the point where I think I hit the end of Degrassi Junior High, so uh, I should be starting on Degrassi High when I get around to doing another blog post. But these shows, which I watched uh, pretty religiously right around the time of like 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, uh, were my first glimpse to what being a teenager might be like. It sounds completely lame when you really think about it, but, I mean, Saved by the Bell was on at the time, And I did watch the show. I mean, I did an episode about it last May. Uh, That show, though, even when I was 12 or 13, the show was unrealistic. It was, like I said, it was a glorified Saturday morning cartoon. Degrassi seemed like it was real. The people seemed real. The lives they led seemed real. The situations they got into seemed real. Caitlin Ryan was one of my first non-animated character crushes. And it, I could go off on a whole tangent about that show, and I could do a whole episode of that that show, and I probably will when I hit a certain point in in my random blog posts about it. But it it, it had an effect on me as far as entertainment about people my age was concerned. And then there were two movies. Uh, Better Off Dead is one of them with Michael Bailey and I talked about that, uh, along with other Savage Steve Holland's other films on a mammoth three-hour ep- episode last fall. Uh, and the other movie is The Breakfast Club, if you haven't figured it out. And I first saw this movie on WPIX Channel 11 when I was a kid uh, growing up in Long Island, and it's edited for television version. And I- I'm not sure how much of it I saw the first time around. I had a tendency to, like, not schedule myself to watch these shows. It's like, I'd be flipping around, I'd find the movie, I'd get sucked into the movie and I'd probably miss like the first 15 minutes of the movie. Like, there was a point where watching The Shining where I would come in at one of the blood in the elevator scenes and then take it from there and where I didn't hadn't seen the first half hour of that movie until I actually just went out and rented it so that I could watch the whole movie even though I'd seen the complete ending. The same thing with uh, with this. I'm pretty sure I might have seen like the back end of it and uh, and it was edited for television so not only were were scenes kind of uh, there's a couple of scenes added in the television cut but but the, the thing that that everybody always kind of remembers about the edited for television version of the breakfast club is that it's badly overdubbed in terms of the the curse words and it's just ridiculously terrible in fact my friends and i were making fun of it i remember making fun of it with friends of mine and i cuz we had all caught it on channel 11 one day and and they were just like yeah like you know Um, instead of fuck you, we said, you know, forget you or, you know, just some of, some of the weird, weird things they had. But I I tried to look for a clip of it because it's one of those things that like, you just have to experience for what it is. Like it's, I can describe it to you, but it's kind of like scrambled porn. Like, you know it if you've seen it and you know what I'm talking about and it's hard to describe to somebody else. But, I mean, it's not even important that they they dubbed it over anyway, um, because more important than the bad overdubbing of that edited-for-television version of the film, uh, The Breakfast Club resonated with me. I think at first was because since the movie itself was already six or seven years old at the time I first saw it, I already knew it was important, or and I knew that John Hughes' films were important, at least on some level. Um, Even the only, like the one I'd seen by that time was probably Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, Out of the team ones, I think I'd seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles as well. Plus the idea of the movie, the characters, uh, the performances, they they all also struck a chord with me. And then I I went out and rented it uh, after seeing it on television. And I went and rented it again and again and again. And I bought the VCR, or brought the VCR up from the basement one day and connected it to the one in the den and dubbed it so that I didn't have to keep renting it because that's what I did. I watched this so many times in high school and college that um, I've become the guy who recites the lines as they're said in the movie. I mean, that's how much I love it. <laughs> so... Um, so I'm going to talk about the film, I'm going to talk about the film, I'm going to give my usual synopsis review, talk about its importance, uh, to me, as well as the genre as a whole, uh, much like I do in of these other movie episodes, uh, and, uh, and so, so I'll get to the film. Um, it is the second film directed by John Hughes. The first one was 16 Candles, which also starred Molly Ringwald, who's one of the principal actors of this film. Hughes, of course, had already written uh, the screenplays for two successful movies prior to directing Sixteen Candles. He had Mr. Mom, and he also had National Lampoon's Vacation. As a director, he would make his mark with the teen genre. He did a couple of other films that were not teen movies and were instead more adult movies. She's Having a Baby, uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, for instance. But... The teen genre is what you mostly associate uh, the late director with, and especially the movies that he made with Molly Ringwald. Uh, she was in Sixteen Candles, she's in The Breakfast Club, she would go on to re with Hughes and director Howard Deutsch in Pretty in Pink. And really with the exception of minor appearances by parental characters, uh, The Breakfast Club only has a cast of seven people. Emilio Estevez, Paul Gleason, Anthony Michael Hall, John Capolos, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy. I'll get to their individual characters later. The film itself made a total of forty-five point eight million at the box office in nineteen eighty-five. It finished in sixteenth place. For reference, it's behind The Goonies, which made $61 million. It's ahead of St. Elmo's Fire, which stars three members of The Breakfast Club, uh, the Brat Pack, and I talked about that movie last year. Uh, That made $37.8 million. The top three movies of 1985, by the way, Back to the Future, Rambo First Blood Part II, and the movie that ended the Cold War, Rocky IV. There's quite a bit of trivia about the film and its production. Uh, if you're interested in it, I will provide links in the show notes. But I at least wanted to hit on a few things. Uh, the film, first of all, was shot in sequence, and it was filmed in the Chicago area, as most of film Hughes's films were. Uh, Shermer, which is the setting, is a fictional town created by Hughes, as we all know. Um, well, okay, Jan, Silent Bob don't know that, but we do, and the. The high school used in the film was Maine North High School, which by then had been closed. It's now actually a police station. And uh, if you've ever wondered why the library in the high school was so nice, when the high school it when the library in your high school was well dank and musty and 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 probably painted like yellow, uh, the library set for the film was actually built in the gym of Maine North High School as opposed to the using the actual library of the high school. And that's mainly because the when they, the production designers came in, they, they, f- they looked at it and just shooting in the library just was not logistically uh, feasible. So they built a library set. The phrase, The Breakfast Club, has two origins. The first was it was a popular radio show in the Chicago area for quite a number of years. Uh, the second, and a more direct inspiration for the movie's title, would be that it comes from the nickname invented by students and staff at, for detention at New Trier High School, which was attended by the son of one of uh, Hughes' friends. There's some interesting casting trivia as well. Apparently, John Cusack was originally considered to play John Bender, the role that went to Judd Nelson. Uh, Emilio Estevez was actually considered for that as well. Uh, Molly Ringwald was originally offered Ali Sheedy's role, but that changed because uh, Molly Ringwald wanted to play Claire. Judd Nelson apparently stayed in character most of the time on the set. Uh, this caused a fair amount of tension between him, other car- other actors, and John Hughes. It is one of the reasons that Hughes never worked uh, with Nelson again, or at least that's what, um, what I read. There's an item about this Preventing possible sequels, and the idea was that um, Hughes and, and you know, for all I know, this is conjecture, but apparently the idea was that Hughes would catch up with them 20 years down the line or something. And uh, I'm not how sh- sure how true that is, but it would have been kind of interesting to see, you know, the four, five characters get together and see what had had changed over those years. And there's also supposedly a two and a half hour kind of director's cut of the film, but apparently Hughes. Had the only print, and if you know anything about John Hughes, especially after the eighties, he was notoriously reclusive, especially uh you know like during that time. so what happened to that print, whether it actually exists, whether or not there were actually plans for the sequel um it requires a little bit more digging and and interviews with people who who may or may not know personally. I don't know if I'd want to see a two and a half hour cut of The Breakfast Club. Maybe deleted scenes, but um, the movie's pretty tight as it is. Uh, so I'll have to I'll have to check it out. I have the high school reunion edition DVD, so there's not that much in terms of extras. I may go out and purchase. Uh, there was a blue Blu-ray release a little bit of time ago and I may go out and purchase that at one point because this is the type of movie where I would want to um, dig into some extras especially after having seen it so many times. But that is it for trivia. Um, if you're interested in more about the movie uh, there's the IMDB page has a really, really good amount of it. Um, some interesting stuff. Uh, the Wikipedia page has some stuff. There's books about the Hughes films that have some information uh, as well. But I do want to get to the film. I do want to talk about it and give it a nice summary. So I'm going to take a break. And when I get back, that's what I'll do.
2: This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession. And least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents All Quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War... I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with a look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th at InCountry.Potomatic.com.
3: From John Hugh, creator of Mr. Mom and National Lampoon's Vacation, and writer director of Universal's 16 Candles, comes another hit The
2: Breakfast Club. It is now 7.06. You have exactly 8 hours and 54 minutes to ponder the error of your ways. Any questions?
1: Yeah. Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his wardrobe?
3: A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse.
4: can't believe this is really happening to me
3: before this day is over they'll break the rules
4: (coughs) Chicks can i hold a smoke
1: that's what it is
3: bear their souls
1: i'm a nymphomaniac
3: are your parents aware of this take some chances
1: being bad feels pretty good
3: huh and touch each other in a way they never dreamed possible why'd you do that
4: because i knew you wouldn't
3: the breakfast club They only met once.
1: I don't want to be alone
3: anymore. You don't have to be. But it changed their lives forever. I mean, I consider you guys my friends.
1: I'm not wrong, am I?
3: Universal Pictures presents Emilio Estevez, Paul Gleason, Anthony Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Molly Ringwald, and Ali Sheedy in a John Hughes film.
1: Why are you being so nice to me? Because you're letting me.
3: The Breakfast Club.
0: Before you see anything, The Breakfast Club opens with the drumbeat of Don't You Forget About Me by Simple Minds over the Universal logo. And we have an opening that is simple, but really, really damn effective. The song plays, we get the credits, and then the following David Bowie quote. Appears on the screen from the song Changes.
1: And these children that you spit on, they try to change their worlds, are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through.
0: The screen explodes and we see the front of Shermer High School and we get Brian's narration, which I played earlier in the episode, over shots of different things in the school, including a prom poster, Bender's locker, Brian's exploded locker, a gym locker room, and the school' psychologist office which has a pile of Rorschach blots on the desk. It's a Saturday. the school is closed except for detention. Our students then arrive. Claire in her father's BMW who, who laments she couldn't get out of detention after she skipped class to go shopping. Brian in his mom's car, she's pissed off. Andy's dad pulls up in his Suburban and grills Andy about possibly blowing his ride. As Andy's a wrestler. Bender walks to school and is almost hit by Allison's parents who drive away without saying goodbye. They all head to the library and take different seats. And in walks Richard Vernon, assistant principal, Who's played by Paul Gleason in a role that is just about as famous as his role as police chief Dwayne Robinson in Die Hard? Vernon warns them about misbehavior. He then assigns them a 1,000 word essay in which they are to tell him who the heck they think they are. And he means a thousand words, not the same words written a thousand times. Before he leaves, Vernon asks the group if they have any questions, and Bender responds with,
1: Does Barry Manilow know that you raid his
0: wardrobe? He gets another detention for that. So now we get to know where our characters fall into the five categories that Brian's narration mentioned at the very beginning of the film. Bender, played by Judd Nelson, is the criminal. He's loudmouthed, he's antagonistic, in fact he starts off by actually antagonizing both Claire and Andy and intimidating Brian. Claire, played by Molly Ringwald, is the princess. Dressed in head-to-toe Ralph Lauren, she has sushi for lunch, rich parents on the verge of divorce, and is your obvious prom queen-in-waiting. Andy, played by Emilio Estevez, is the athlete. Specifically, he's a wrestler who has a shot of a full ride to whatever college wants him. He and Claire seem to run with the same people. He readily defends her while Bender is giving her a hard time. He also is the one who says that if Bender went away, nobody would notice because he might as well not exist at this school. Brian, played by Anthony Michael Hall, is the brain. He's socially awkward. He winds up staring at Claire long enough to get an erection and actually seems to be the only person attempting to work on his essay at one point. Allison, played by Ali Sheedy, is the basket case. For the first half hour of the show, Or so of the movie, she actually just sits in the back of the library or of the tables with her hair in in her face saying nothing. I think the best part about this portion of the movie is actually watching her facial expressions and reactions to the arguments between Bender, Andy, and Claire as well as Brian's attempts to join in the conversation. For instance, after Andy's line about Bender not mattering, he says he'll uh, go out and join some clubs, and Brian says he's in the math club and the physics club, and Bender's like, what are you babbling about? And then and, and, and he's like, I'm in the physics club, and Bender asks him, "Like, what do you do in the physics club? And Brian explains that, well, they talk about physics and principles of physics, and so Bender replies, So it's sort of social demented and sad, but social, right? Andy and Bender get into it some more when Bender walks to the front of the library and removes a screw from the door. It slams shut, of course. Vernon comes in, wondering why the door is closed. And after Vernon desperately... First first he puts a chair in the door, the chair goes flying, which is just hilarious. And then and then they take an entire magazine rack and try to put the chair, try to uh, barric- uh, pop the door open. But they end up barricading the door. <laughs> so... Um, Vernon knows Bender took the screw out of the, out of the door. He's like, give it to him. And then Bender just turns on Vernon and, and his,
2: his jaw is just all... You're not fooling anybody, Bender. The next screw that falls out is going to be you.
1: Eat my shorts. What was that? Eat my shorts. You just bought yourself another Saturday, mister. Oh, crushed
2: you just bought one more right there well i'm free the saturday after that beyond that i'm gonna have to check my calendar good because it's gonna be filled we'll keep going you want another one say the word just say the word instead of going to prison you'll come here are you through no i'm doing society a favor so that's another one right now i've got you for the rest of your natural born life if you don't watch your step you want another one Yes. You got it. You got another one right there. That's another one, pal. Cut it out. You through? Not
1: even close, bud. Good. You got one more right there. You really think I give a shit? Another. You through? How many is that? That's seven, including the when we first came in. You asked Mr. Vernon here whether Barry Manilow knew that he raided his closet.
2: Now it's eight. You stay out of it.
1: Excuse me, sir. It's seven.
2: Shut up, Pee-wee. your mind bender for 2 months i got gotcha. you i got gotcha. you what can i say i'm thrilled oh i'm sure that's exactly what you want these people to believe you know something bender you want to spend a little more time trying to do something with yourself and a little less time trying to impress people you might be better off All right that's it i'm going to be right outside those doors the next time I have to come in here, I'm cracking skulls.
0: It's almost like a standoff. They're just yelling at each other. Boredom soon sets in. Everyone falls asleep. Vernon returns to wake them all up, asking if they have to go to the bathroom. When they get back, Bender spends his time ripping out pages from a book. And they have a conversation about Clara's parents. Uh, she laments how things suck. Allison screams, ha! And Brian tries to butt in and says, life is too tough, to which Bender replies,
1: Face it, you're a Neo-Maxi-Zoom
0: And then we get a great Bender moment where he asks Claire what her name is and implies it's a fat girl's name, and he interrogates her on whether or not she's a virgin.
1: Let's end the suspense. Is it going to be a white wedding? Why don't you just shut up? Have you ever kissed a boy on the mouth? Ever been felt up? Over the bra. Under the blouse. Shoes off. Hoping to God your parents don't walk in.
2: Do you want me to puke?
1: Over the panties. No bra. Well some buttoned. Calvin's in a ball on the front seat past 11 on a school night. Leave her alone.
4: I said, Leave her alone.
1: You gonna make me? Yeah. You and how many are your friends? Just me. Just you and me. Two hits. Me hitting you, you hitting the floor. Anytime you're ready, pal. I don't want to get into this with you, man. Why not? Because I'd kill you. It's real simple. I'd kill you and your fucking parents would sue me and it'd be a big mess and I don't care enough about you to bother
0: And the great thing about this moment is not just Judd Nelson bringing it as Bender, but Molly Ringwald's facial expressions. If you really, really watch, she's doing her best just to look right at him and give her kind of a complete poker face, but you can see she's struggling with it because she's either embarrassed or intimidating, but it by what he's doing to her right at that moment. It's one of those moments that makes her performance as well as the rest of the performances in this movie so great. And this movie really does hinge on the acting uh, because in the wrong hands, it's it's a disaster. Um, Andy, being her friend, rushes in to defend her. He takes Bender to the ground and demonstrates why, when you're in high school, the guys in the wrestling squad are the guys you don't want to fight. Bender, though, then shows us why he's not one to fight because he pulls out a switchblade and tells Andy that if he really got into it with him, he'd kill him. He stabs the knife into the top of a table, and Allison promptly steals it. We get a break from the tension when Carl, the janitor, whose picture we actually saw earlier in the movie under the Man of the Year award, uh, comes in to clean the library. Bender tries to give him some shit, but Carl blows him off and just doesn't give a crap. He then tells him that the clock in the library is 20 minutes fast. Allison and Andy are sent to the faculty lounge to get soda for lunch. They have a quick conversation about why Andy's there. She calls him completely out on his bullshit reason that involves his old man and what his old man wants for him. While they're doing that, Bender bugs Claire and eventually reveals that, surprising to nobody. Brian is a virgin. Claire says it's okay, and Brian blushes. They then have lunch. Claire eats sushi. Andy has enough food to actually feed all five of them. Bender has the Coke from the vending machine. Allison chucks the bologna from her sandwich onto the statue behind her and puts Captain Crunch and Pixie Sticks between two slices of Wonder Bread and eats that. Brian has a very wholesome lunch. Soup. PB and J with the crust cut off. Juice box. Which uh, leads to Bender's reenactment of life at Big Bri's house.
1: Son! Yeah, Dad! How's your day, pal? Great, Dad. How's yours? Super. Say, son, how'd you like to go fishing this weekend? Great, Dad. But I've got homework to do. That's all right, son. You can do it on the boat. Gee. Dear, isn't our son swell? Yes, dear. Isn't life swell?
0: At first everyone laughs, but when Brian's obviously bothered by it, Andy asks Bender that what his home life is like, and Bender paints a picture of a terrible abusive home life. Andy calls bullshit on that, and Bender walks over to him and shows him a cigar burn in his arm, which he got from spilling paint in the garage. He then storms off to this to the stairs in the back of the library. In the middle of his own lunch, Vernon spills coffee all over his desk. And he has, and then he heads to the to the faculty lounge and to the restroom. This motivates Bender to have everyone sneak out of the library so he can get his bag of weed out of his locker, which is more bonding on the part of the characters and also something that needed to happen. To be honest with you, because he could only stay in the library for so long without kind of it seemed to getting a little stale. Um, one of my favorite moments in the scene is is Brian's like drugs. He's got drugs. Do you approve of this? And then what? Or, or no, no, no. He's uh, and Ali's like, but no, it's it's before. Um, it's before that. It's they're on their way. I don't know where we're where are we going. I don't know. You know. Um, what do you think we're going to be doing? And and Andy's like, I don't know. And at one point, Andy just looks at me. Since you say one more word, and I'm beating the shit out of you. And it's just like, yeah. Uh, anyway, on their way back, uh, they spot Vernon and. This begins this kind of montage of them running all throughout the school, trying to get back to the library with Vernon kind of walking around the hallway, not realizing they're all out there. And at one point, they come to a dead end in the activities hall. Uh, They do so much running that I I have to wonder how big the school is (laughs) because it's like huge. But anyway, Bender sacrifices himself for the greater good. He runs through the hall singing, I want to be an airborne ranger. And uh, needless to say, Vernon catches him and then brings him back to the library, chastising him for pulling a fire alarm on Friday. And then he completely takes him out of the library. Uh, they will be without his services for the day. He locks Bender in a closet and then he tells him that years from now, when Bender is older, Vernon's going to find him. And he's going to beat the shit out of him. He's like, I'm going to knock your dick in the dirt. Bender looks at him. He's like, You threatening me? And he's like, Vernon's like, What are you going to do about it? They love me around here. I'm a swell guy. You're a lying sack of shit. And uh, Vernon just, he's like, Come on, let's go. I'll give you one punch. And he closes his eyes. He's like, Come on, hit me, hit me. And Bender, like, just looks at him with this kind of like, this look in his eyes, and 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 Vernon just opens his eyes. And he's like, I. That's like, a, he even he even kind of fakes a punch, and Bender flinches a little bit because I thought he's like, I thought so. You're a gutless turd, and uh, it's a scene that both actors do really, really well. Because, I mean. I've never physically threatened a student and I've never been physically threatened by a student, but I know what it's like to get into a shouting match with a student where things just kind of escalate to the point where it seems like you're having some weird out of body experience saying things that you don't think you'd ever say, yelling and screaming and ranting and raving. And Paul Gleason plays that very well, getting more and more intense as the conversation goes on. And and Judd Nelson just gets this look in his eyes that like, it's like, what the hell is going on here? Is this, this guy for real? And, it's tense but it doesn't go too far and that's one of the things that this movie runs as far as the risk is that you know there's a lot of things in the movie that could be completely overdone and uh and and, and that doesn't happen here bender doesn't stay in the lo- in the closet very long no pun intended very anyway uh he climbs into the ceiling while vernon's in the bathroom he then crashes through the library ceiling he quickly hides under the table where claire, claire and andy are sitting. And he tries to put his head between Claire's legs while they all cover for him. You know, I heard a ruckus. Can you describe the ruckus, sir? Uh, Vernon then gives them all a warning and storms off with the toilet seat cover tucked into the back of his pants, which cracks everybody up except for Claire because she's pissed off because Bender tried to get between her legs. And then they go and smoke pot. Uh, Claire brags about how popular she is. Bender just chills and laughs at everyone. Brian does some weird black old black man voice like chicks get not hold their smoke that's what it is you know it's weird and andy smokes like a ton and blasts some music and for some reason this turns him into like crazy hulkamania guy and he runs around the top floor of the library like doing hurdles over um book like low bookcases and he runs back into like the room with the stereo and uh and and screams and the glass shatters and it's this weird moment that you kind of wish was out of the film or or edited or or redone to the point where it didn't seem so weird or just like unrealistic because I've never known someone who smoked weed to be that aggro but maybe I'm just wrong here down in the basement of the building Carl catches Vernon sifting through the confidential files, and we cut back to the library where Alice and Andy and Brian talk about what's in Brian's wallet and what's in Allison's purse, which is a ton of stuff. She's like a bag lady. She implies that she's ready to run away at any moment. Uh, Brian, who's obviously still high and trying to act cool for Andy, laughs. Allison just gets annoyed and walks off, and and he follows her, and, and he finally gets out of her. Her parents completely ignore her they just uh, she's unloved neglected and it's probably that's one of the big reasons of the way she is downstairs vernon and carl drink beers they talk about the kids vernon's all oh, they hate me they changed on me they used to respect me and now they don't and carl's a little more insightful telling vernon that it's he who changed he got older not the kids and vernon's very dismissive but you can tell he's a bit conflicted or at least very frustrated In the back of the library, the five students sit in a circle and have a very long conversation that starts with the question, what would you do for a million dollars? Allison says she'll do anything sexual. She doesn't need a million dollars to do it. She says she's an infomaniac, and she was actually screwing her shrink. This eventually leads us back on topic to Claire's virginity, and we get the famous sort of answer the question, Claire, scene about whether or not she's ever did it, and she finally admits she's a virgin. Allison then says she's not an infomaniac. She's a compulsive liar. Andy then tells us the story why he's in detention. He taped Larry Lester's butt cheeks together. And as he tells the story, he gets more and more upset that he beat up this weakling of a kid as a way to get his father to admire him. And... He starts crying when he realizes how humiliated Larry must have felt when he was getting his buns taped together, and everyone around him looks really uncomfortable. Uh, Brian then relates about how his parents are the same way with his grades, and that one of the problems in his life is that he's failing shop because he couldn't make a ceramic elephant correctly. He figured shop would be a good day, to, good way to maintain an average. You know, have you seen the people who take shop? And Bender's like, "I take shop. You must be a fucking idiot." He's like, and Brian says, "Well, I'm a fucking idiot because I can't make a lamp." He's like, "You know, you know, you're a genius because you can't make a lamp." Did you know, Bender? Did you know, without trigonometry, there'd be no engineering. Without lamps, there'd be no light. And they, they, and Allison just is like, "I can paint with my toes." Like this complete non sequitur. In order to break the tension, she can do all sorts of things with these toes. And Brian says that he can make spaghetti, and Andy says he can tape all their buns together, and Bender's like. I want to see what Claire can do. Claire then proceeds to put her lipstick between her breasts, lower her head, and apply the lipstick without using any hands. Bender does this sort of snarky, mean, slow clap. And, uh... they're just goes off on, on Claire. They have this shouting match. We get more of one of the more honest moments of the movie, even if it's a little bit... Uh, melodramatic
1: that was great Claire my image of you is totally blown you're a shit don't do that to her you swore to god you wouldn't laugh am I laughing you fucking prick what do you care what I think anyway I don't even count right I could disappear forever and it wouldn't make any difference I may as well not even exist at this school, remember? And you don't like me anyway.
4: You know, I have just as many feelings as you do, and it hurts just as much when somebody steps all over them. God,
1: you're so pathetic. Don't you ever, ever compare yourself to me, okay? You got everything, and I got shit. Fucking Rapunzel, right? School would probably fucking shut down if you didn't show up. Queenie isn't here. I like those earrings, Claire. Shut up. Are those real diamonds, Claire? Shut up. I bet they are. Did you work for the money?
4: Shut for those earrings. Your mouth.
1: Or did your daddy buy those?
4: Shut you? up!
1: I bet he bought those for you. I bet those were a Christmas gift, right? You know what I got for Christmas this year? It was a banner fucking year at the old Bender family. I got a carton of cigarettes. The old man Grammy said, hey, smoke up, Johnny. Okay, so go home and cry to your daddy. Don't cry here, okay?
3: My God, are we gonna be like our
4: parents?
1: Not me. Ever. It's unavoidable. It just happens. What happens? When you grow up, your heart dies. Who cares? I care.
0: Brian then asks the Monday morning question. In other words, I consider you guys my friends. Will we be friends on Monday morning? And Claire replies, no. They probably won't be friends. Uh, he Eventually, he yells at her. He calls her conceited and tells her why, he, why he's in detention. He brought a gun to school. He was considering suicide because of the F he was getting in shop. But, A, it was a flare gun. And, B... It went off in his locker. Everyone, including Brian, cracks up at this. And then they dance. No, really. There's like a dance montage and it's kind of cool to watch, but at the same time, it comes out of nowhere. And it's really odd. They just dance. And I don't know whether or not to like it or hate it, to be honest. I mean, at least the song isn't too bad, but it is. It's just kind of like we get from point a to point b here and what are you trying to show me but after the dancing bender sneaks back into the closet in vernon's office claire gives allison a makeover and and what happens is that she reveals the cuteness that is ally sheedy and allison then goes and sees andy because claire obviously picked up on how the two of them kind of liked one another she then heads to the closet in vernon's office and kisses bender and vendors like you know how your parents use e- use you to get back at each other. Wouldn't that be outstanding in that capacity? Brian writes the paper while the while we have this coupling up, and uh, he congratulates himself, <laughs> and uh, and then they all leave, and and Allison and An- Allison and Andy kiss, and Allison you know leaves, takes a patch off Andy's jacket and leaves, and Andy gets in the car, and then. Bender and Claire kiss and Claire gives him one of her diamond earrings. And then we get Brian's final narration. Dear Mr. Vernon,
1: we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. And you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. But what we found out Is that each one of us is a brain, and an athlete, and a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. Does that answer your question?
0: Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. As that ends, Bender walks across the football field and raises his arm in triumph, while Don't You Forget About Me plays once again. When I get back, I'll give my opinion talk about why this movie means just so
4: damn much.
3: R. What's that stand for?
4: Robin. Hello, everyone. This is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake, starting the first part of December. Rob, are you going to take out the trash? Uh, I'm right in the middle of uh, recording an ad for my my podcast. I'll, I'll do it in just a little bit, okay? Sorry to interrupt, boy wonder time. Boy wonder? I'm all man, lady. Uh, Rob? Uh, okay, where was I? That's right. My podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves a Drake. It'll be hosted over at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3, and hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with Issue 1 and going all the way to Issue 183. 183 issues? Wow. Well, it's a good thing, because... Everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. Things are clear.
0: So this is where I usually give uh, my personal thoughts and feelings as well as talk about what other people say about the film. Uh, my usual source for this sort of stuff is Jonathan Bernstein's book Pretty and Pink, The Golden Age of Teenies Movies, and it's a great source. But Bernstein actually devotes an entire chapter of the book to the Hughes films. In fact, the chapter is called When You Grow Up, Your Heart Dies, after the line from, uh, from the movie. A major portion of the chapter is about The Breakfast Club and he gives the movie plenty of praise. In fact, if he's got any criticism, it's that there are some parts that are melodramatic, especially when it comes to Judd Nelson's performance. And he also criticizes the Ali Sheedy transformation at the end. Chuck Klosterman uh, doesn't take too much time on The Breakfast Club and Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs. He mentions it along with St. Elmo's Fire in a piece about the real world and how movies like those prepped their audiences for what the real world would eventually bring to our televisions in the early 1990s. Matthew Rettenman, in his book Totally Awesome 80s, gives The Breakfast Club plenty of praise, calling it the ultimate 80s movie. And beyond that, there's a significant amount of stuff written about the movie. There's fan sites, there's articles, there's there's books. And, and um, I think like my friends in college, when they were taking an Intro to Psych, they actually watched it uh, and stuff. Um, so I'm just going to get on like to what I think about it. And I'll start with my actual criticisms of the movie. I see the melodrama. Nelson's Judd Nelson's very good in this movie, but there are moments where he and everyone else in the film completely overdoes it. And it's easy to let that slide because the characters are teenagers after all, and they all have a definite flair for the dramatic. The dance scene, while fun, comes out of nowhere. And I've also got stuff to say about Allison's transformation, but I'll get to that in a little bit. Because overall, while the film is not flawless, for a comedy drama that is set in one room... It's endlessly watchable, and I have watched this many times over the years, and I often find myself getting more out of it as I get older. Part of it's my own age, and it's interesting to see how my perspective changed with time. When I first saw this, I was 14 or so. I completely identified with Anthony Michael Hall's character. Shit, I was Brian Johnson when I was in high school. I was the awkward, dorky kid who put way too much pressure on himself for grades, and I didn't necessarily have the skills or maturity to always handle myself. Then again, girls like Allison would have scared me, and girls like Claire, way out of my league. Now, I'm not exactly Richard Vernon, uh, but as I wrote in a post that I I have in the blog last year, and and I will uh, uh, link to that in the show notes, I definitely see his character in a different light. When you see this movie as a teenager, it's easy to see him as a flat-out villain. He antagonizes Bender enough, and he tries to to drop the hammer on everybody. You know, mess with the bull young men who get the horns, you know, that whole thing. But Paul Gleason gives him just enough humanity that you see Vernon isn't a complete asshole. He's extremely frustrated. His claims that the kids get worse seem to be more of a defense than something that is an actual truth of the matter. Maybe because he doesn't want to admit that Carl's right when they're talking to one another, and that... He, Richard Vernon, is the one who changed. He also doesn't seem to particularly want to get into it with Bender, but it kind of, like, it just happens and it escalates, and his vulnerabilities get in the way where he has to be the top dog. He has to be the one in charge, and he has to be the one who wins the argument. And and I think that's something that he probably deals with. And it's funny because I would have never understood the character in that way when I was a teenager. Now, moving on to the five main characters in the movie. Um, Hughes sets them up as a cross-section of high school. And to a certain extent, they still apply. If you spend enough time in high school, you'll see that the lines, yes, do often blur between clicks. But at the same time, you'll see these delineations are often in place. And that Brian's question about Monday morning, as well as Claire's response, is still pretty valid. And the fact that Claire's response is still pretty valid is really cynical and really sad at the same time. And you honestly wonder a little bit how that camaraderie did last past the weekend. What did happen on Monday morning? How long did Bender and Claire last as a couple? Or Andy Allison, for that matter. Did Brian actually pass shop? Did someone actually say hello to him in the hallway? You wonder how fleeting all of this is, even though the movie does leave you with a pretty good feeling at the end. For the most part, I've always been a little conflicted when it comes to the way that Claire gives Allison a makeover. Uh, On the one hand, I don't have a problem with it. It's a way for Claire to extend an olive branch, so to speak, by doing one of the few things that she's good for there which is to help Allison with her social life. Claire's the popular girl. She knows popularity. She knows being social. She picked up on the fact that Andy and Allison seem to like one another. So that's her thing. It's her doing a nice thing. It's her playing to her strengths in a way. But on the other hand, there are quite a number of people who look at this scene and see that Claire's taking away the thing that is unique about Allison. Up until the point of the makeover, she was odd. And quirky and it was kind of cool and now she's well I mean Ali Sheedy is really cute but it's this ugly duckling underneath her is the hot girl Yeah, it's just you remember the MTV show called Maid um, the idea behind the show was to take someone uh, and have them embark on a journey toward doing something that was completely unexpected than them um, like you know the prissy beauty queen type becoming a skateboarder or something um, and there was a point like in the first maybe a season or two of that show where it was pretty good and some of these transformations were kind of fun to see but eventually in later seasons it devolved into nerd rehabilitation like every mousy girl wanted to be prom queen every nerdy guy wanted to join the football team it's like you know and maybe this is just my my high school bullshit coming back to me as I watched the show but it was like you know Let's transform you into what's considered right or popular or the norm as opposed to actually just celebrating who you are. Let's not make the show about being just doing something you completely wouldn't do or doing something completely unexpected for you. Let's make you, you know, let's ugly duckling swan you or, you know, and things like that. And I don't want to aspire to be one of the beautiful people. I mean, that's the whole point. That's what this scene feels like at times for me. That Claire's making Allison normal or making Allison in the made sort of way. Then again, if you look at most of Hughes' films, as much as they explore the teenage condition and explore it well, they're all in some way or another about wish fulfillment or realizing fantasies. Sixteen Candles has the awkward girl getting the guy. Pretty Pink is the poor girl getting the rich guy. Ferris Bueller is a fantasy. <laughs> weird is guys creating stuff from their fantasies and if any of them deviate from the slightly probably some kind of wonderful because in the end Eric Stoltz's character ditches his fantasy girl for someone who actually really loves him but so the idea that everyone gets along after the unaccepted are finally accepted is kind of a fantasy or at least as wrong as it seems from the point of view of my 90s high school student sensibilities <laughs> Still, its faults aside, I watch this movie and I'm struck by how well it still holds up. How much I still want to quote it. How much I still care about all these characters, even the one I'm actually supposed to hate. There's a real humanity to all of this. And you don't always get that from the teen genre. And I think that's why it stands above all of the others. And when Bender walks across that football field and raises his hand in Triumph at the end, I'm right there with him. Next time around, I'll continue my look at 1994 with an episode about the comics of 1994. I'll have a special guest on the air to talk with me about it. So come back in a few weeks for that. And until then, check out the blog for more essays. And thanks for listening. have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at PopCultureAffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to PopCultureAffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.